Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our veteran guest today for this episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio is former Navy SEAL Carl Higby, and he's also a former presidential appointee. I was telling Carl right before we got on here to record that I loved his bio. You know, I asked him for a short bio, and I got to tell you, for those that are listening, it was the shortest bio that I've ever had, and I, I just wanted to thank him for that. And I, and I really want to thank him for being here. Welcome, Carl, to Straight Out Combat Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if you remember, you're a busy guy, and you wrote the book. I got enemies foreign and domestic. We can get into that a little bit. But, uh, you know, I met you a little over a year ago at a function for Gold Star Family. You had an opportunity to tell your story, and I was very impressed. And what struck me right off the bat was your how you conveyed your love for the Constitution. And, you know, it, it struck in me, and, you know, we've come full circle a little over a year, but it's not about me. It's about you, and it's about America. And we want to hear your story. So might sound kind of odd, but, you know, <laughs> what did you dream about when you were growing up? What did you want to be, and who were your mentors? Uh, well, I'll tell you, you know, too much to, um, I think— during my service, my mother's dismayed. When I was four, she gave me a book on Navy SEALs, and I was like, sounds like a good idea. I'll aim for that. You know, kind of grew up with that always in the back of my mind. And then um, after 9-11, I was, I was in high school when it happened, and, I, you know, I ended up going to college to wrestle. And as soon as we started putting boots on the ground in Iraq, it's when I dropped out of college and joined the military, did the SEAL thing for about nine years, and, you know, kind of moved on. It was, for me, you know, I'm not, I'm not a deeply religious guy. Actually, you know, I... My experiences overseas, and we'll go into that a little bit, kind of drove me a little bit away from religion, seeing how much uh, much turmoil there is because of the, you know, because of religion in this world. So uh, it was, I, I, but I've always felt that, you know, a higher calling, like there's always something that you have to give back. And everybody knows me, all my neighbors and everything, you know, Carl's the guy you call if you need something. And, you know, while I'm there helping you, whatever it may be, if it's install a fence, you're going to, you're going to get an earful from me if I don't like something, but I'm, you know, I'm still there helping. And that was always the thing. So when that happened, I felt like, you know, Americans were out there fighting and dying for, for this country. And I had to do my part. Awesome. And thank you for that. So, you know, so let me get this straight. So you were a wrestler in high school and a wrestler in college. Yep. Did, uh, did you find that any of that wrestling training helped you in, in, in SEAL training? Yeah, actually, in my buds class, about two out of five guys were wrestlers. So uh, it's a, it, you know, I, I don't know if it's because we're just too dumb to quit or if it's <laughs> we're just, you know, <laughs> genetically cut out for it. But it was uh, there was a lot, a lot of like-minded folks there. Yeah, I was not a wrestler in college. I wrestled in high school, but I was a ninety-eight pounder man. I was, I think they added a few pounds towards the end of the season. I think I got up to one hundred three, a whopping one hundred three, but. But yep. uh, yeah, wrestling is. Hey, I wrestled one twelve. My, my freshman year was one twelve. Now I'm two fifty. Yeah, I'm like one eighty right now. And but anyhow, it's all good. And so, you know, what was your most? Because we really want to talk about what's going on today. But what was your most memorable experience? And I'm sure you've got tons of them uh, of Navy SEAL training. And if anybody's out there listening that wants to go to Navy SEAL training, what do they need to know, man? Uh, I mean, it's the best and the worst of times. Uh, I'd say. Uh, the, the, my most memorable 
time was our first run, our first, you know, they do these conditioning runs that range between seven and 15 miles. So it's on the beach. And I was like, man, I am a terrible runner because I went through buds at 225 pounds, which was, you know, far larger than most guys in the class. And I'm only six feet tall. So, you know, hauling that weight down the beach is, is, is a pain. So they have this thing called the goon squad that I found out that if you're in the back of the pack, the group gets to kind of, you know, uh, run in a circle while they wait for you. So they're running anyway. And most of the people who go to buds are very good runners. So I figured this was easy. They usually, what they would do is they would take the fastest guys in the pack and they'd make the slow guys like me carry them for a section of time, but you get to walk. So it was fine. So, you know, that was, as long as I didn't have to run at breakneck speed, it was uh, it was fine for me. I would carry or push up or do anything. So that was my my probably my most memorable time was when I figured out that I don't have to be the fastest guy because if eventually if you're that bad at running, they'll make you do something other than run. That's awesome. So and so the the advice to anybody then going in would be one boot in front of the other. There is an end game or. Yeah, I mean, take you know, to take things one day, you know, not even one day, one evolution at a time. Like I remember, I, you know, I read all the books and I came in and just absolutely wowed by the whole thing. But honestly, the guys who I had the, you know, who I was closest with, who made it through, did the best. We took it one day at a time, you know, one evolution at a time. We had fun, we laughed at it. Like, look, it can always get worse, but at that right, that right there moment in time, it's not worse. So take it, take it as it is. So, you know. You go through hell week and things like that, which is, you know, six days with no sleep. It's I, I took it one meal at a time. So I got to get to breakfast, got to get to lunch, got to get to dinner, got to get to mid rats, got to get to breakfast, coming back. And, you know, that that's what gets you through. And there's a lot of things in life you can do like that, too. So many people are focused on the, you know, what am I going to do in 10, 20, 30 years? You know, be here now, man. You know, we got to win the fight now. Otherwise, there's no fight down the road. Absolutely. You know, so you were actually, never get this straight, you were actually, you were practicing mindfulness meditation as a Navy SEAL, as a BUDS candidate going through. If you were taking it meal to meal to meal, that's like living in the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's all you can do because you don't know if you're going to break your ankle after lunch or, you know, you just, you got to be here now. And if, you know, I find if you're focused, I mean, obviously you always want to plan for the future, but I find if you're way too focused and too worried about, you know, way down the line, you can't succeed in the things you're doing now and you won't get to the goal down the line. You know, setting a series of measurable goals along the way is what always gets you to the end result. Awesome. So, so let me get this straight. So this is post 9-11. You get your trident and obviously you go, you go to a team. How soon after that was your first deployment? 18 months. So you were so, stateside and then you just, then you left. Yeah. So the typical SEAL pipeline is, you know, you go to boot camp where you have, you know, we had, I think, about 50% of my my boot camp class failed the initial 50-meter swim class. And then the very next day, 75% tried out to be SEALs. So uh, it was kind of funny. I was like, you realize you have to swim 10 times that distance. I mean, there's a lot of people from the Midwest that have never been in the water. So uh, so then you do that for, you know, I think boot camp is like 9 or 10 weeks or something like that. And then you go to an A school, which is, you know, not any number of weeks. And then you go to BUD or then you go to INDOC at BUDS. Then you have buds, then you have SQT, then you have check into your team and you basically, you check into your team and it's, and I talk a little bit about it in my book. You just completely start all over. You're the bottom of the totem pole and you have to earn your right to be there. And just because you make it through buds doesn't mean you'll actually make it onto a deployment. You know, guys go to the team and they can't hack the, the actual real world training scenarios that they, they put forward before deploying. 
And uh, so, so that's really where you uh, where you find out what you're what you're made of is when you get to the team, and that's you build the strongest partnerships. I'm still friends with a ton of the guys that uh, you know, that that I served with. You know, they we get together as soon as we, as often as we can still. Right. So so 18 months, you get your first deployment. You know what what did you think you were fighting for? And and when you got in country or you know out of this country but into that country, what kept you focused? You know, I, I still have, I'm sitting in my office right now and I have my Bud's hat that I, that, you know, the, the, the cap that you wear in Bud's that's tied to your shirt so it doesn't wash away in the surf. And, you know, <laughs> I look at the things that I wrote in the, uh, in the brim, the inside brim of the hat. And the, some of those things are the, still the same things that I'm fighting for now. Um, and, you know, I will say, you know, going to, and I, you know, look, look, anybody who's Googled me will see CNN's, you know, hatred for me and, and some of the comments I've made in the past, which, you know, some were out of line, but some, some were, I still, I still hold on to because you go through the military and, you know, I was a 22 year old kid and they expected me to deploy to a foreign land 5,000 miles away with the majority of the population that wanted to kill me. And to do that, uh, I don't want to say indoctrinate you, but they train you and they insert certain beliefs into you to make you be able to justify doing the terrible things to terrible people. And it, it is a it is a mental hurdle. That's why we see so many people coming back with PTSD, because unlike SEALs, they aren't as adequately mentally trained to deal with those stressors. And we'll talk a little bit about more PTSD as we were talking before. But one of the things that they, they insert you and they, they train you significantly to say that you are going to see some horrible things and here's how you're going to cope with it. And I don't want to go too much into detail into the, in the training side of that because, you know, quite frankly, people just don't need to know. When you have those types of scenarios with people, you come out, I don't want to say jaded, but you look at things very differently than people who do who have not served, who have not been over there, not had to fight for their life. And I see that a little bit today. Like, you know, for, for instance, me, my comments uh, five, six years ago, right when I came out of service against Islam, I still struggle with that. I, you know, I, I will never really agree with Islam because I don't think it, you know, coincides with a Western democracy. I don't think it coincides with our ability to have the freedoms we do. And also ingrained in me through the military is almost a hatred for it. I mean, it, it is it is a culture. When you go in there, you are taught that Islam, the radical enemy you are fighting, is bad. And they teach you that in order for you to be able to do your job without significant psychological damage. Right. So so obviously it had a great impact on you and on the, the your teams. Yeah. It, interesting that you say that. You know, because when I think of a Navy SEAL, absolutely, and this is not to kiss anybody's rear end, but I think of a Navy SEAL as a as a warrior. When you read the books and you talk to the guys, of course, I'm just an Army guy, but when you, you guys, I don't care what anybody says, you guys are a different breed of person. And, you know, to hear you say, you know, that maybe some of those guys weren't adequately prepared for some of that. It's kind of, it's, it's astounding to me because you guys, to me, are like the ultimate in, in, in a warrior. And so yeah. that's interesting because it really gives me, you're the first Navy SEAL that I've talked to that, that has actually alluded to that. And it kind of gives me, you guys operate in a high, high 
altitude all the time. I mean, you know, people love reading about Navy SEAL missions and how they've glorified some of this. But then yeah. there's the downside of that, too, which would be the traumatic impact of actually going through what you guys witnessed and had to go through. Yeah. And, and you know, I want to you know, challenge non-service members right now to, you know, imagine the fact that you are, you know, 18 months prior sitting in a safe, you know, um, in America, not worrying about this. And then now all of a sudden you're driving around a Humvee in, in Iraq surrounded by insurgents and looking for IEDs. Imagine the, the, the mental impact. And the only way you can justify that in your own mind is because of a, you, you have to centralize it upon an ideology. For us in the Middle East, it was Islam. You, you have to justify the ability for your own. It's not in human nature to want to take a life. It's just not. And you have, you know, guys, you know, let's take whoever. Let's say his name is Bob. Bob is 18 years old, 19 years old is in a combat zone before he's allowed to drink. And he has to somehow rationalize that in his juvenile mind that he is now taking lives. That is something that takes an enormous amount of training and an enormous amount of, of, of patience. That way, you know, you guys have some of these, like you were in army, you have people deploying for 16, 18, 20 months at a time. You're completely, I mean, like that's a lot changes in 20 months. So you come home, you've been in a fight for your life for 20 months and now you have to come back and readjust to civilian society. That's a very difficult thing to do. And, and, and I really understand that. And, you know, some of my, you know, look, I had to resign from my presidential appointment because of some of the things I said six years ago. You know, it wasn't even like I said something recently. Six years ago, of course, that's the media market we're in these days. Ironically, <laughs> the organization I resigned from was the Corporation for National Community Service, which I was the lead face for the entire federal government doing community service for people. So, you know, take that as it is. It's kind but, of an interesting concept. <laughs> exactly. So I, I must be a horrible racist, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you have you have these guys coming back. And a lot of the people we served were veterans. A lot of them came back with coping mechanisms for this opioid abuse, domestic violence. And, you know, not all of it's PTSD. Some of it's just the body can't cope. And, and this is something that I think, you know, when you talk about straight out of combat, this is something that, that, that civilians will fail to understand. And if you, I mean, there's tons of funny videos out there that done by this guy, Matt Best. I don't know if you ever heard of him. I have not. Uh, but I have oh, to check he's, him out now. He's, he's hilarious. But like you look at the there's videos out there. It says, you know, military meets civilian people or, or Google something to that effect. And it, he actually made a funny, a series of funny videos of military guys interacting with civilians upon returning from deployment. And the, the, the jokes are, are harsh and crude and, you know, not fluffed up around the edges. And it, it shows the contrast of, you know, a banker versus a soldier. And I think that's something that the, that the American public, especially someone like me who's been in the public eye for a long time, needs to understand that, look, my comments, you know, even now, that I don't, I don't sugarcoat them. I'm not going to beat around the bush and certain things I still stand by and certain things I wish I hadn't have said. But you need to understand that, that troops have a very different feeling. When you, when you, when you are sent somewhere to take someone's life, it changes the way you think about things. And you don't really have the patience for all the crap from, you know, these, these snowflakes who want everyone to not be offended. I call it noise. You know, yeah. let me ask you this, man. You know, and this touches upon some very, you know, heartfelt, deep-seated 
beliefs that I know you have and I have about freedom. But, you know, do you have any regrets or, or do you feel like we were there for freedom? Uh, I think, yeah, initially. I, I, look, I've been I've been somewhat critical on the way the war was fought. Um, I have. um I think we went in there for the right reasons. I think we went in there under the premise. I mean, keep in mind, we had overwhelming support for the war. I mean, overwhelming support. We went in there for the right reasons. We had all, everything going for us. But what we didn't anticipate is is the need for, I mean, look, that, that area has been the central, you know, central area of conflict for millennia. So it, we didn't do our homework well enough. We went over there and you can't nation build. They're never going to like us. They are strictly beholden to an ideology and a religious based government that requires a dictator. We didn't understand that. We said, oh, we're going to come over there and impose Western democracy. And I mean, we've been trying that. I mean, we had a crusades. We had, you know, a number of different other escapades throughout the, you know, the last thousand years that have never worked in that region. And they still govern the same way they do. Uh, when we stopped killing bad guys and we started nation building is where everything went to hell. Uh, we started it under Bush and Obama carried it on. But one of the things under Obama, which he actually did, and I was impacted by this in 2009, my deployment to Fallujah was he just they just stopped approving us to go get bad guys. They did. They just wouldn't let us go kill bad guys. They wouldn't let us go on missions. They wanted us to tone it down. They removed funding for maintenance on, you know, our, our air and ground assets. So therefore they couldn't operate as much. And they did it very tactfully. I mean, Obama was a brilliant politician, crap policies, but brilliant politician. Um, and they, they sent the narrative back home that the war was over. Less people were dying, even though that wasn't the case. You know, less bad guys were being caught because, well, we got them all. The, the war's over. Well, the enemy got a say, and the enemy, you know, obviously we still we have ISIS um, or had ISIS. I think the president now has done a pretty good job at beating them down. But we 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 really screwed up at the end there. We didn't we didn't properly control infrastructure. We didn't properly vet who we were putting in charge. We didn't give the necessary resources to the right people. But also at the same time, like. That population does not work like Western democracy, and they don't function by the same principles of accountability as as we do. Yeah, I think what I hear here is, you know, we're dealing with tribal Islam, a system, like you said, it's been around for millennium. But it's interesting to note that. So what I'm hearing, Carl, is that we actually did not get you guys did not get the support that you needed to actually win that mission. Initially we did, and then it faded out with, here's the problem, is you have, you know, we had, this is America's longest war. I mean, you have people going into war, and then essentially the people who chose not to go to war, which is fine, were then at home electing the politicians to govern the troops at war. Our entire electorate, you know, you know, less than 1% of Americans serve in the military, our entire electorate back home is built up of people that, you know, may respect, some don't respect, many don't respect, but they're the ones electing the people that govern policies that you and I had to institute at, you know, at the price of our lives sometimes. And it's, you know, it's the way our system works. I'm not disputing our system, but it is, it does put in perspective that now you had this surge against the Iraq war, which led to, you know, I think in large part, democratic president, Democratic Congress and how, you know, House and Senate. And that was the downfall of the uh, of our foreign policy. I mean, there's no there's no 
doubt that uh, the foreign policy under Barack Obama was a disaster for the military. And I, I think that uh, it's something that we, we need to learn from. We can't, we can't continue to make the same mistakes. No, absolutely. Not when lives are at stake. And, you know, I read an interesting book uh, called The Thistle and the Drone, and it outlines specifically what you're talking about and all of the Western experiments and actually European experiments, too, to try to codify the Middle East. And, it, and you're right. It hasn't been done. And so you get there, you guys are successful, and ladies, by the way, and and then the support seems to just dry up. Yeah. How do you think those Iraqis or those Afghanis are looking at us now? Well, I can tell you that, you know, the reason we lost, we're losing in Afghanistan or lost in Afghanistan, essentially, is because of that very principle of lack of support and also lack of continuity. I never went to Afghanistan, but I've done significant research on, on you know, how it's going. I've talked to my friends. And essentially what happens, and this happened to a lesser degree in Iraq as well. Iraq was more centralized control, like it had much more oversight from uh, the policy standpoint uh, from D.C., but uh, Afghanistan, you'd have battle space commanders, admirals, generals, what have you, come in and promise all these local sheikhs and local leaders and local villages certain things, roads, infrastructure, schools, food, supply, security, whatever it may be. And as a result, these villages sometimes alienated their neighbors, they alienated friends or old allies or things like that in order to get the things that they were promised by the American military and the American establishment. And this is, like I said, this has happened under Bush, Obama, you know, it, it ha it's been happening. And then what would happen is an admiral or general would rotate out in his year's time because that's what they do. They do eight months to two years. Nothing moves quickly in the middle that's run by the government. And <laughs> so by the time that person rotated out, the project may have been started, but then a new admiral general comes in with his new ideas for his own you know, evaluation and says, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do this. We're not going to build a road or school or we're not going to provide security. We're going to shift our resources over here because I believe this is the way to do And now that village is sitting there with half a school or half a road or no more security, and they've now alienated their, their other communities and things like that. And now they're left vulnerable to the Taliban. So, of course, they hate America. I mean, that is why we're losing the war. And that's been largely overlooked. Hmm. Interesting viewpoint. So, so needless to say, what we might be hearing in mass media about the Middle East is probably not what's really going on. Not at all. They've gotten it wrong pretty much from day one. Hmm. So what was your experience coming back when you came back, when you, when you rotated back to the States after your final deployment? What was that like? Tell us a little bit about that, Carl. And then I want to get to your book. Who we have today is Carl Higby on Straight Outta Combat Radio, former Navy SEAL, a presidential appointee. And he's written a book, Enemies, Foreign and Domestic, A Seal Story, when we want to get to that. But tell us about the transition. Tell us about that. I mean, transition is tough. I, you know, and everybody who's transitioned out of the military knows about TAPS, the Transition for Active Duty Personnel, which was, it's gotten significantly better. Um, but it, it, when I went through, it was three days. You know, I was in a room with three or 400 people. Uh, at the time, I owned two businesses and employed 22 people at the time of my transition. So... Um, I sat in this room with, you know, three or 400 people and there was a 24 year old woman teaching the course. You know, she had been a yeoman for four years in the Navy. She'd a, a paper pusher. And at that point she had then transitioned out on a Friday and started teaching taps on a Monday with no experience in the private sector. And she'd been teaching this class for, you know, I don't know, a couple months at this point. And so finally I raised my hand. I said, ma'am, with all due respect, are you qualified to teach this course? <laughs> and good question. Yeah, she could, well, you know, like, oh, well, yeah. you know, I've taken all the necessary qualifications. I've read the PowerPoints and blah. 
I said, no, but have you, you're teaching a course on how to teach active duty personnel, many of which were 03 and above, you know, 30 year olds, 40 year olds, teaching us how to interview in the private sector. <laughs> yet you've never worked a day or ever interviewed in the private sector. It's like, you know, that's like having Barack Obama take me out to the shooting range and teach me how to shoot pistol. You know, something does not fit up, you know, fit. Yeah. There. So I'm, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I say, like, okay. So I said, wouldn't it be better if we went out in town and just called a bunch of local business owners and said, Hey, I have the most reliable, most, you know, hardworking, the, the, you know, the already real world experienced person that's ready to be hired by you. Hmm. Here you go. Here's a room of 400 of them. Pick one. I mean, that, that's, that to me makes perfect sense, but I was laughed out of the room by the, uh, the tap staff because I was told literally that I don't understand the system well enough to speak up on it. You so, know, okay. after, after hearing that story, it's no surprise that these veterans are coming out and it's just no surprise that they're coming out and they're having the challenges that they have. And that may, it's a great opportunity for a lot of us that have been in the, been in that space and truly want to help. So tell me about the book, Enemies Foreign and Domestic, A Seal Story. And then let's talk about your motivation for what you're doing now. And, and I know you, Carl, you know, I knew you for a few minutes and, uh, I've read your stuff. I've seen your videos. I've seen how people have, you know, said things about you. And I just know that your heart lies in America. I know it's deep seated. And, yeah. uh, I think there's a, I think there's a time and place for everything. And I think the time is now, but tell us about the yeah. book and tell us the legacy and tell us why you're motivated now. Well, I want to go a little bit back into uh, trend, the transition process um, before I go into that. And, you know, a lot of guys come out and, you know, my, I'm from Greenwich, Connecticut. So, like, my natural inkling was like, well, I'll go into finance because why? All my friends and family are in finance. So I went into a hedge fund, a local hedge fund, that, an interview that was set up by a friend. And they said, well, what have you been doing for nine years? I said, well, I shot bad guys. They were like, well, we don't do that here at this hedge fund. So this is not <laughs> the career path for you. So, I mean, like. You know, the, the, it's funny, but it also it's not. It's yeah. you have a, a significant amount of veterans who come out or like, look, I'm 28 years old. I've been in charge of 50 guys with 20 million dollars of equipment with life and death decisions. I was controlling air assets, controlling ground troops. Can, you know, I was essentially the CEO of a, of a 50 person company. And now he comes out. He's got no college degree because he spent putting all his time foot to ass in Iraq. Right. And he, he can't get a job other than, you know, working at, in the aisle at Home Depot because, well, he doesn't have, you know, the, the check in the box and the college degree. So a lot of guys like me, like who don't have a college degree, are pissed. We come out and we're angry, you know. And it, it, the transition is very tough because then you have this negative stigma be, behind a lot of guys who've served that say, well, you know, we don't want them to work here because they may snap. And you know, I've never snapped, but most, most veterans have never snapped. We're actually far more controlled than most of the people you'll ever encounter. I mean, like if you've ever kicked in a door and had to make a, se a decision in a hundredth of a second on whether to shoot or not to shoot, and you've chosen not to shoot, I would give you far more restraint than anybody else in the civilian sector. Yeah, it definitely and, doesn't sound like somebody that's going to snap, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. But we that stigma, and that's why I'm glad this show is here, is that stigma is there. So, you know, I was I was very angry and I, um, to to talk about some of the things that I'm pissed about, you know, and one of the things I was infuriated about is you come out as a, I was an E6 came out. I was making, I don't know, 60, 55, 60 grand a year as an E6 in Virginia Beach. And my neighbor who didn't work, who was on government programs, who had eight kids, 
had two BMWs, the same house I did, and you know never went to work. And and, and that to to a veteran to see that is someone who's making. I mean, with all their combined things with with childcare and you know the way the system works, they were they were raking in over. And I talked to her about it. She had no problem with it. She was raking in over a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. And to see and for veterans to see things like that, you know, when we've we've literally put our lives on the line for sixty grand a year and been away from our families for nine, ten, twelve, twenty months at a time, living next to somebody who doesn't even have a job and worked and is on you know government assistance that makes over a hundred thousand dollars a year, as she admitted to me she did. Mm. That's a tough pill for a veteran to swallow. And, and you know, you have uh, you have this happening everywhere, and so that's why that's what led to writing my first book, Battle on the Homefront. Is I was pissed off about a lot of things. I called it how I saw it. You know, some of my opinions have slightly changed since then, but not many. Uh, my principles are still true, and uh, you know, I look at these things today, and I said that this is the problem with America: is you have two sides. You have those who, and, and I always say this to people, and I've even used this term with my mother-in-law which subsequently has led to a better relationship. As I've given the analogy, there are two people in this world. There are those who have been punched in the face and those who haven't. And not that I would punch anybody in the face or wish they did get punched in the face, but um, it, 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 and that could be literally or figuratively. If you haven't been punched in the face, you can't lecture those in the arena that have. And you have a, a significant portion of Americans today that haven't been punched, that have never had a hardship because, look, you might even even those living in poverty today here in America have air conditioning, an iPhone, a car, an Xbox, things like that, which, you know, poverty in other countries are nothing like that. So when you have a faction that is voting against the principles that gave America the greatness to be able to provide those type of things when they some of them don't even work or some of them, you know, have, I mean, many of them have jobs, but. You you have people in America that have never had a hardship. So, of course, they're going to vote for this utopian socialist ideology like we see today. And, of course, they're going to protest our institutions like banks. Of course, they're going to protest people like the president, like President Trump, who tells it how it is, who's been there, who's worked his way up from the bottom, who's, you know, when, when he someone asks him what makes him an important person, he can point to the New York City skyline and say that he changed it. I mean, he you have people in society today that don't know what bad is. And that led to me writing my first book because I wanted people to get a no BS, no political correctness, run of the mill way of like, here it is, in fact, in black and white. There's not much opinion in there. You know, my second book is actually the story, the second book that you're holding right now, Enemies Foreign and Domestic, is actually the story of me trying to write the first book because I actually wrote it on active duty. And I requested the permissions to publish it. And the military said, Carl, we don't want you to publish this because some of this makes us look bad. <laughs> and I said, well, why don't, why don't you change the policies that are killing people? And then you won't look bad anymore. Yeah, and great they said, point. Well, they said, well, yeah, they said, well, Carl, we're not going to do that. Um, I said, oh, okay, so you'd rather hide the problem than fix it. But So the, it, what, the, the second book, Enemies, Foreign, and Domestic, is a David and Goliath story of me taking on a lot of the principles in today's either politics or bureaucracies or establishments that says like, this is, you know, like don't bury the problem, fix it. You know, I like, the, yeah, I like the way you put that, you know, interesting to go back to the first book and you're so right, Carl, on that because people that have not traveled outside the U S 
tend to have that utopia feeling like everybody lives like we do in America. And you're right, man. Poverty is poverty. And when you see it firsthand and freedom is freedom. And it's not like that in the rest of the world, not even in yeah. some of the developed nations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing is like and now you have the first, you know, like, look, you've had the the left side of this country running on essentially socialism. And you had Bernie Sanders. I mean, 60 years ago, you would have been thrown in jail for being a socialist. <laughs> Don't even get now you started. have a, a presidential candidate running as a socialist. So then you just have this woman who just won the New York City, uh, a New York City district primary for Congress over an incumbent that ran as a socialist. She's like, yep, straight up. I'm a socialist. I mean, you tell me one place in the world that that has ever worked ever, ever. I in, can't in, think you, of one. Yeah. Cuba, Venezuela, you know, all just total crap holes. So you have, um, you know, then you have a guy for the first time in a long time, we have a Republican president who was willing to punch back and say, no, this is stupid. That has, you know, like you can't make this up. You can't lie to people. And he's getting demonized as if he's this horrible person. But at the end of the day, you know, like there's one that wants peace and tolerance and, and you know, inclusiveness, unless you disagree with me. And I want everything and I want $15 minimum wage and I want, you know, guaranteed income and, and you know, health care is a right and all these. They, they want, 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 want. And then you have the other side who's willing to work for it. And the people who are working for it have gotten tired of supporting the people who don't. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And when I look at the election of President Trump, despite what mass media wanted the whole world to believe, that the Democrats and, and Hillary were on their way to win the election. I think that, and I think it was an historical election because it's the first time in the history of the United States that somebody that wasn't a career politician got in, or one of those times. But I think it was a wake-up call of the working-class person that you're actually talking about to say, listen to us now. We want something yeah. different. And let me so let me ask you this, Carl. Do you think that freedom exists for everybody in america and if it doesn't how can we get there how can we how can yeah, we get freedom there? freedom there is equal opportunity in this country unlike ever before in any other country in any other experiment of governance in the history of the world i mean we are the freest nation we have we are the most prosperous nation and you know what like look People can say that we're this terrible country, but you try to go pull some of the crap that you pull in China or Korea or Venezuela or Honduras. You try to, you know, do the same stuff. You know, you, you think you can get away with here. You try that in another country, you won't be able to. They'll, people, you'll be buried under the jail. Yeah, people disappear. You know, and we've read stories yeah. about that and firsthand accounts, like you just said. Yeah, and, and the the issue is that. You know, it, it is a lack of respect. We are unequivocally the freest and most prosperous nation ever. I mean, we have we make up, you know, one fifth of China's population, yet doubled their their Olympic medal count in the last Olympics. I mean, give me a break. We we are you know, we've put a we you put a man on the moon. We have, you know, if you look at today, look, just look at today's society. You have the billionaire from Greenwich, Connecticut. And then let's say you have. I don't know, the secretary that works at, 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 at a local local hardware store, okay? She might make $30,000 a year, and the local billionaire makes a billion dollars a year. But if they both walk across to the street to the same coffee shop where they get the same cup of coffee at the same price, and they both get hit by a truck, they're taken to the same hospital to get the same medical services, to get the same respect and the same care that, they, that either one would get. 
Okay, that is something that is incredible. So when you talk, when you tell me that life is stacked and life is unfair, this country has amazing equal opportunity. What it does not guarantee is equal achievement. And I'm willing to fight and I'm still willing to put my life on the line to make sure that everybody has the right to equal opportunity, but I will not guarantee anybody under any circumstances equal achievement because I think you have to do, make your own destiny. You have to work for yourself. Achievement will not come at someone else's hands and you cannot legislate prosperity. No, you can't. You know, and again, despite what mass media outlets want us to believe, and you alluded to it, America is still the greatest country ever in the history of the world. How, in light of all the nonsense that's going on right now, what do we need to do? What can you tell the listeners? What do we need to do as a society to get us back to where we need to be, which is what we've always been a world leader? You know, it's personal responsibility. I'm, I'm currently, I'll let it out of the bag. I'm currently writing another book right now. And um, one of the big things is personal responsibility, but it's also education. And I tell people, like, look, I've worked with hundreds of candidates um, for, you know, different offices. And I always tell somebody that you're never going to lecture somebody into voting for you, but you can make them think about why they should vote for you. And I tell this to people time and time again, and half of them fight me on it, and half of them are like, oh yeah. So if I walk into a room and tell you, you need to vote for me because of X, Y, and Z, you're going to be like, okay, this guy's lecturing me. If I, if I walk over to you and say, I believe in these things, do you agree with me? I'm not telling you to vote for me, but you'll go home and you'll say, well, I actually agree with those things too. And it's much more likely to have somebody, um, you know, do that from a non-confrontational, non, you know, a conversational standpoint. And I, I, I want people to go out there, and I put this out on Twitter the other day, and I've done a couple interviews since then, that, you know, right now we are probably more divided than we've ever been outside of pre-Civil War, immediately pre-Civil War under Lincoln. And... It's not sustainable, and I, I don't want civil war. And I, I put this statement out. I said, look, it's, it, it's incumbent upon Republicans as the responsible party. I think I said I challenge all Republicans to go out, seek out a Democrat, and do something nice for them. Whether they express gratitude or not, just do it. Do it. Just shut up and do it. And the, the responses I got were amazing. It was I've got, I got people on the right saying – uh, you know, I've got all the guns in the world and I'm ready for the Civil War and I'm not doing anything nice for any Democrat. And I got people on the left saying, I'm ready for Civil War. My Molotov cocktails are ready. I don't want your favors. You know, there was a lot of nice responses, too, but those are the ones that stood out. And so I put another one up. I said, look, you don't want a Civil War. I said, you know, you have two sides of this Civil War, which will be fought. One is you know, folks like you and I that possess 300 million guns, which is ironically almost 50% of the globe's weapons. I got my M4. Uh, yeah. I no, you're right. Exactly. Yeah, we, we possess seven trillion rounds of ammunition. Have 20 million able-bodied military veterans that are trained. We have, um, you know, significant. Most of us are preppers. I have water and food and storage and things like that. Versus somebody versus a, a political party and political faction that can't even figure out which bathroom to use. At that said, my side will definitively win that war. And I still say I don't want war. People should heed that warning. You know, I've also been there. You know, it's not something I want because at the end of the day, we're going to have to come back to a country either way. The only difference between then and now is if we do have one, Americans would have killed other Americans. 
And I think it's time to start being more civil. And look, I've, I've said things in the past that have been extremely divisive. And then, you know, like my mother-in-law are in completely different sides politically. And we actually took some time to spend some time in each other's shoes. I did an event that she won and she did an, I took her to the shooting range. Both of us had a little bit of an eye-opening experience from our perspective standpoint. She realized that every single person at the shooting range, there were about 20 people, they were all Trump supporters and they were all extremely nice to her. And she was like, wow, you guys aren't nut jobs. You know, I mean, that is the type of thing. Just experiencing each other's side and being willing to listen for two seconds. So that engagement, and I'm glad you pointed that out, you know, you, you have to engage each other, you know, because a lot of times what I've found, you and I, you might like, you know, uh, the Boston Red Sox and I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan and we could go to fisticuffs over plays and who's right and who's wrong. But we lose the fact that we both love the American sport of baseball. Right. And if we really start talking about the sport, we would find that we have more in common with each other than we don't have in common. Yeah, and I mean, like, I can I can prove to you that the Red Sox are a terrible team. So. <laughs> Probably get some hate mail coming, but, but, but you know the deal. But, you know, and those Red Sox fans, they are rabid. But uh, yeah. so, so what do you think, honestly, despite all the flipping noise that's out there, what do you think people want? What do Americans want? What? I mean, and, and we will see this. I, I, I'm calling a 45-state win in 2020. Americans want, you know, a bigger meal on the table. They want a, you know, they want a, a bigger paycheck. They want better things for their kids, and they want jobs. And that's what you got. So are you and running I'm, for office? Is there something going on here? Not yet, but eventually uh, I imagine I will be back in the public light. The, the issue is we need you – know, Look, I, I was watching CNN the other day because I do watch that show uh, just to see what the other side is saying. And I saw this woman, Angela Rye, who I've debated before. And the immediate talking point she goes back to is racism in this country. And it's like, Jesus, you know, it's like Donald Trump is racist. And that's like the, the that's the, the default thing. The American people don't care. Donald Trump has created the lowest black unemployment ever, ever. That's not racism. Show me one institutionalized policy that he's put in place that is racist. Yeah, and, and, you know, absolutely. And they're always playing these different cards. Yeah, exactly. And and the issue is, is like, look, you can you can call comments by any number of commentators racist, but the real bigotry here is from the left that says, you know, you have to accept me, and if you don't like what I stand for, you're a bigot. No. I can I can totally disagree with you on something, still respect you and get along as Americans. But when you start throwing bombs at people like Donald Trump didn't create this vitriol, he responded to it. But when you as Americans, we got to take the first off, we all need to have a freaking sense of humor. I mean, people get so wound up about the dumbest stuff. Everybody just needs to relax. I posted a picture on Instagram the other day. that I literally had to put in quotes. This is meant to be funny because so many people have such thin skin now because my my theory, again, I've never been punched in the face, you know, literally or figuratively people got to relax. And if everybody relaxes a little bit, we could just agree to disagree on certain things. We don't have to compromise our own principles. You know, back in the day, man, there was a time when my fuse was very short on just about anything I was opinionated about, right? But what I've learned, and of course, my punch in the face was at 11 years old, but that's a whole different story. But my belief now is just what you say, Carl. If people take a step back and breathe, and yeah. look at something. If you don't have humor in your life, then you're totally destitute, I think. But but they, they just need to breathe. They need to relax. It's not well, let me, let me, the end of the world. 
Yeah, let me give you a real world experience, you know, and this is this is something that's in my first book. When I was 11, I was molested by a gay guy. Well, you knew that's what you and me have in common. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, I, I, I went through that. It was a, my gymnastics coach and it's in my first book. And it's something that that I held on to. I didn't tell a soul until I was 18. Didn't tell anybody. I was embarrassed by it. I was ashamed by it. Yeah, I went 40 and, years, man. Yeah. And it's in it, 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 you know, it, it, it deep down inside, it, it, it eats you alive. And it's something obviously going through the military where I was in when don't ask, don't tell was a thing. For me, I came out and I was like, you know what? I, I, I said time and time again, I've said it you know, on radio interviews that I was, I was not a fan of the gay community. I've said it in my book. I thought it was, I thought it was bringing down society. I, I was totally against it. And, you know, now I have a couple of friends now who are gay. And, you know, like the thing is, I still disagree with it. I still do. But that doesn't mean I don't have to respect them as a person. And I understand that, like, what happened to you and I, it wasn't because he was gay. It was because he was a deranged individual. Same thing as a mass shooter. Same thing as anybody who commits any crime. It's and, you know, you, you learn these things as you go through life. But sometimes it takes a life experience to do this. And, you know, the figurative getting punched in the face. You know, it's something that we all need to kind of take a page out of and just and and take a look back. Be like, look, does gay marriage really affect the economy? Technically, it's actually better for the economy statistically. But look, if straight guys can be married and have the the joy of divorce, why shouldn't gay people, right? So, <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. I mean, actually, I, I think that it is something that we just need to kind of relax. Roe v. Wade. You know, I know that with the new Supreme Court thing, they're they're worried about that. But it's like this is stuff that. People just need to take a step back and learn how to live together. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it. Certain things I don't agree with. And I, you know, I will use my social influence to try to influence people to make decisions otherwise. But I don't want to legislate it. I don't want to hate them for it. I don't have time for that anymore. Great point. You know, I, I know that you're living in the moment. I get all that. But, you know, where do you see yourself in the next three to five years? Tell us, where do you, where do you see yourself? And what kind of a legacy do you want to leave? You know, you're already, when you write books, you leave a trail behind. Yeah. So, and it's a story and it's a great story, but so where do you see yourself in three to five years and what's the legacy you want to leave behind and, and the message? The legacy for me is I want to leave this, leave this country better off than I got it. You know, it's kind of, I'm a big outdoorsman and I think that the, the term that every outdoorsman, every hunter, every camper things is leave the campsite better, you know, cleaner and better than when you got to it. And that's kind of my pr- principle with America is I, I want the, I want to make sure that I went into this fight and I came out of this fight making America a better place than when I started. You know, three to five years, I, I am you know still highly politically active. I'm still highly involved in, you know, the pub, the public facing thing. So I don't know. We'll see what uh, what's in stores. I, li- I live in the Socialist Republic of Connecticut, so it, it might it might be a. <laughs> A difficult run for me, but I ran for Congress in 2014 and, you know, did fairly well. So let's see what happens. So how can listeners get your book? Uh, Amazon. Just go to Amazon, type in Carl Higby, pops up. You can follow me on Twitter, at Carl Higby. Is there a website? Yeah, carlhigby.com. I keep it really simple. <laughs> yeah, you do. I'm the one who sent me the shortest bio in the history of the world. So, I've never been accused you know, what of do you not want? being clear on something. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to be that way, though. You know, it's a certain mystique about you, but but... So what do you what do you want the and you alluded to some of this, Carl, but what do you want the non veterans to know about combat veterans in general? And what do you want your brothers and sisters in arms that are making that transition? What do you want them to know? So veterans and non veterans. You know, I Carl I think 
to the best thing to know about a veteran is we can be your best friend and most loyal ally. But if you make us your enemy, it will be the last thing you do. You do not do not cross, especially combat veterans, because we've we've it can't get any worse than we've seen it. We've we fought for our lives. But if you if you give us a chance and, and, and really if you want us to work for your companies, if you want us to be a member of your community, I mean, I live on a, a, a small road and everybody on this road knows that if something happens, I'm the guy they can call at 10 o'clock at night. I've been to people's houses to help them fix their circuit board. And then I have two neighbors that just don't get it and don't like me and they regret it because, you know, I am not somebody that will stand down and just take abuse. I will fire back. And I think a lot of veterans are the same way. And I, veterans can be the greatest asset to uh, to any company, to any community, any group of friends. But once you once you alienate a veteran, it is you're in for a fight. Rightly so. Uh, and then, so your brothers and sisters, what do you want them to know? You know, if they're if they're in that dark place or that abyss or they really don't know or have the direction, what can they? You do? know, honestly, the best thing to do is is don't fade away. I know a lot of guys like I, I have I have friends who are seals with you know college degrees and masters that one of them stayed here for a month because he just couldn't get his head out of his ass. He, he was in a dark place. He, he couldn't figure out what he wanted to do. He didn't have the purpose. I mean, keep in mind, like when you leave the service, you don't, your purpose is no longer dictated to you. You have to dictate your own purpose, which can be difficult. Don't give up. There's an enormous amount of people out there who care for you, who want you to succeed. You know, I, I respond to people on social media all the time about how we can, you know, how we can help. There are groups out there. I mean, like, there's a, there's a group out there, and I'll give them a shout at Operation Pay It Forward. And uh, they take veterans who are, who are down on their luck, who are hurting, and they take them out to do their outdoor bucket list, hunting. You know, they, they took me out. Um, I did a bison hunt with them a while back. And right after my resignation, it was, it was one of the greatest clarify, you know, clarity moments of my life because you're out there. They take you back. They surround you with a veteran community, a, a veteran atmosphere. And you go out there and, you, you know, you spend some time in God's country. And, you, and there's groups out there that want to help. And don't give up the fight. You know, it never surprises me, you know, the amount of wisdom that, you know, the ladies and men that we've had on the show at Straight Outta Combat. And every time I hear another story, it just uh, solidifies me and what we're trying to do with the show. But how can we support you and your mission? You support me by supporting other veterans. I mean, I, I've, I'm fortunate enough to have established a, a good base and a, uh, you know, a, a good life. And, you know, if you're you know, military or not, reach out to somebody who is and just make sure they're good. See what you can do to help because, and, and also companies out there. If you're, if you're a, a company, your greatest pool of employees comes from the veteran community. I guarantee you that. Well, thank you for that. And I, I just want to say, hey, Carl, it's great to see you again. I really appreciate you and who you are and what you stand for, you know, the country that we both live, love and live. And, you know, it's in our heart and in our soul. And you know, if there's anything we can ever do down the road, you know, let us know how we can support you. And uh, again, I appreciate you and all the listeners out there. Thank you for listening to Mr. Carl Higby, American patriot and somebody who really has his heart in the right place. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. 
they're not broken. Before they burn it down